This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. In this week's programme, a legend of the wine writing world. Fiona Beckett is The Guardian's wine critic. She's also a prolific author, food writer, judge and food and wine pairing expert with her website matchingfoodandwine.com. Can't wait to speak to her. And sticking with the theme of pairing, how do you go about creating an entirely new spirit from scratch to pair with Indian-inspired cuisine. We'll find out with Vishal Patel, who with his brother-in-law did just that. They've created Salasa. We'll hear about that later in the programme. Plus, your recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. The wine world can be intimidating, needlessly so. It's been my passion since my early 20s, but I'm absolutely certain I shall go to my grave not knowing all I should do about it. If you're listening to this, then the chances are that you're likely to be someone who gets handed the wine list when you're out with friends. I confess that appeals to the control freak in me, uh, but I'm sure you'd agree it also brings a lot of pressure to bear too. Choosing wine is relatively easy if you have a good sommelier standing alongside you and money is no object, but life isn't like that, of course. Wine pairing can be one of the trickiest areas. Some foods are pretty easy, to be honest. Others, hello English asparagus or curry spices, are a bit of a nightmare. So where do you go for help? Well, here's a potential saviour. Fiona Beckett is an author, wine writer, food writer, wine judge, food judge. Uh, She's probably most familiar as the wine writer for The Guardian, but she's arguably most useful to us all, in this context at least, for her excellent website, matchingfoodandwine.com. And annoyingly, she's one of the only people I can think of who isn't a professional photographer who can take appetising pictures of food as well. Um, Fiona, it's a great pleasure to to chat to you. I've really been looking forward to it. Um, Thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Oh, not at all. Um, Looking forward to it. And uh, yes, very gratified by by your comments about my photography. (laughs) Oh, thank you. It's so hard. It's so difficult to take pictures of food. It it looks like it should be easy, but it's it's really not. And somehow you you managed to do that. But um, first things first, um, your route into wine writing was actually a little serendipitous, wasn't it? Uh, Yeah, that's nice euphemism, really. Yeah, I mean, I was just dead lucky. It was absolutely a classic case of being in the right place at the right time. I was working on a a now defunct uh, newspaper called Today, um, which was kind of like a mid-market tabloid for those of you who are not familiar with it. I'd been um, working on features and doing all sorts of um, general features and, and, and comment pieces and quite a lot on food. And they decided to do a food and wine supplement, uh, a bit like the Guardian Feast. And they'd lined up um, Julie Goulden to do the wine. 
um, quite naturally. And um, unfortunately, she then found she couldn't because the other paper for which she was writing objected. And so they had no one to write the next week's column. And they said to me, you know about wine, don't you, Fiona? And I said, yeah, yeah, I know about wine. Lying through my teeth. And, um, <laughs> and so they said, well, just, just kind of put us together a couple of columns. And um, so I did with, with the help of um, my late husband, who actually did know a bit about wine, fortunately. And um, they said at the end of that, oh, they said, that's fine, you know, just carry on. Wow. I mean, that's uh, an incredible start, really. Uh, it r- reminds me of, uh, I once bluffed my way through a football report uh, for uh, the BBC, and uh, I-, I know nothing about football. So um, I'm very fortunate in a way I didn't end up being a football writer on that basis. But uh, no, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. You're part of the, the wine writing establishment, um, if I may use that term now. I suspect you probably don't like the term that much actually but is is the establishment something uh, in wine writing terms that you slightly rail against um yes i mean i do um i i get a bit um hot under the collar sometimes when i go to those big tastings or used to um and those big trade tastings and you know you get sort of chaps coming up to each other and sort of slapping each other on the back and saying how are you dear boy and and that does still go on. And so, um, yeah, I don't really like to think of myself as establishment. <laughs> what would you like to think of yourself as uh, in terms of what you do day in, day out? I like to think that I can help people who are really into food enjoy wine because so many people are intimidated by wine. I'm sure you, you come across this. Mm. And... I mean, including people who cook, um, sometimes for a living, but they, they, they feel and say, I know nothing about wine, which is not obviously true, but they, they, that's what they feel. And, but they have the skills to cook and they have the skills to often write recipes. Um, and I see my task as actually making that, opening up that world to them so that they can just enjoy wine and other drinks, in fact, alongside the food they're so good at making. And food and wine go together so naturally. Um, I love what you enthuse about because it appears to be food and wine in equal measures. I mean, only this week you posted a picture of a quiche and said, you know, it was impossible to resist, so I didn't. Uh, And I I love that. I'm surprised that in the fine wine world, I sometimes encounter people who don't appear to be very interested in food. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, definitely a division. Um, I think a lot of people in, in, you know, who take wine seriously feel that the wine always comes first. Uh, you choose the wine and frankly, it doesn't matter a great deal what you eat with it because, you know, it's the wine you want to drink. And my view would be, yeah, but wouldn't it be so much better if you actually chose something that set that wine off and, you know, made it more enjoyable rather than something that, that you know, might destroy it or, or diminish it? Um, so um, I think it's relevant. And actually, most people drink wine with food. They don't kind of assess it in, in abstract. So this is your motivation, presumably, for setting up matchingfoodandwine.com. Yes, I thought, you know, I've come at, um, into the wine world through food, um, being, being naturally greedy, loving to cook, um, you know, enjoying going out to restaurants. And there was a gap, um, I thought, for a site that actually brought the two together. And I think in some ways still is. There's not that much out there. 
Um, and so, you know, it's just become a go-to resource, I think, for a lot of people. Um, I think a lot of people in the trade use it. I'm sure they do. I mean, I certainly do. The term perfect pairing, you were talking there about um, wine intimidating people. Do you think the pursuit of the perfect pairing uh, intimidates people as well? Yes, I'm, I'm ambivalent about this. I know I don't like the term and I know that, but I know that people do quite like the idea of the perfect this, the perfect that. You get it in, in recipes too, don't you? You get the perfect roast chicken or something like that. I mean, it's just ludicrous, really. You know, there is no one perfect way of making chicken. There is no one perfect pairing. But it's quite helpful to say, well, there are these options. Not too many, because otherwise you just overwhelm people with information. But just say, you know, you could go in this, this and this direction. Um, and depending on your taste. But, um, I mean, it's a kind of, um, it's a bit of tabloidese, a bit of magazine-type journalism, isn't it? The perfect this, the perfect that. Um, doesn't help us, really. It makes us feel inadequate if we don't get it. Yes, it's the curse of the headline writer, I, I suspect, uh, because it's such an easy headline, the perfect roast chicken or the, the perfect wine pairing, isn't it? Um, what yeah. would you say are the most challenging pairings you come across? I mean, there are. Um, I, th- I think the whole, the whole trend of food where kind of like all sorts of dishes are served at the same time, that is relatively challenging in that you can't really find a wine that goes with them all actually that even applies to a cheese board if you have a cheese board with you know sort of five six different cheeses of of different types particularly if you like cheese and you buy you know well matured artisanal cheeses um it's quite difficult to find a wine that goes with them all but the usual suspects i mean you mentioned asparagus um Mm. artichokes is another there's usually a way around it i mean i I, I generally don't find a problem with asparagus um, and even artichokes. Uh, it kind of depends whether you, if you cook them the old French way, where you kind of um, um, boil them and then you kind of serve them with a vinaigrette, that is quite difficult. And, and certainly I wouldn't serve a red wine with it. But, you know, there are ways around these things, usually by tweaking the dish slightly. Presumably the vinaigrette, the acidity is working against the wine. That's the problem. Yeah, I don't know. Um, if you... Um, I mean, I've made artichoke or come across and then made myself um, artichoke salads, sort of some grilled artichoke, grilling artichokes makes them more wine friendly. And also um, a dressing with a little bit of um, lemon rind in for some reason um, really works. And particularly with kind of Italian whites, like something like um, verdicchio. So um, it's not impossible to, to, to find solutions. And, and my, my job, as I see it, certainly on the site, is to kind of find ways around things so that if you enjoy artichokes and you enjoy wine, you know, it's, it's not a no-no. You mentioned asparagus because I mentioned asparagus in the introduction and you suggested that you don't have any problems there. What's your answer for asparagus? It depends a bit whether you're serving it, you know, with with um, again a vinaigrette or, or a kind of buttery or unctuous kind of hollandaise or something like that. So if it's the latter, I generally go for something like a chardonnay, some kind of creamy white. And if it's um, if it's kind of got a more of a classic sort of olive oil based dressing um, or olive oil drizzled on top. Um, maybe a slightly sharper white, maybe a rosé. Honestly, I don't, um, I don't agonise about it a lot. Sauvignon Blanc is pretty good. It's kind of, um, 
There's, there's often a kind of asparagusy flavour in that, but they don't tend to cancel each other out. If you honestly, I'm I'm not too troubled by it. Yeah, white Bordeaux actually is uh, the the route I have, have taken, uh, but I love the idea of the uh, the combination of the Chardonnay with the the richer, more unctuous sauce, the Hollandaise, and that brings me on to one of your pieces of advice on the site. You talk about using bridging ingredients. What do you mean? I mean, if you um... Quite often the advice is to, to match the kind of basic ingredient in a dish, but it does depend what else is on the plate. Um, and if you have something that is tricky, um, you, can, you can introduce an element that will make it more sympathetic to the wine you might want to serve. So, for example, I was thinking, um, uh, I mean, ice cream is perhaps a, a tricky ingredient, but if you serve it as you probably would a lot of the time with with something pastry based a tart of some kind a pie a crumble you know the fruit in that and the the sort of sweetness of the pastry will kind of mitigate the iciness of the ice cream and so you know it then becomes an easier question i mean i wouldn't normally put a dessert wine um with ice cream but if you um have an apple crumble or something like that then you can. Looking through the site, uh, you're about positivity, you're about encouragement. So um, this is probably, a, 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 this is veering into possibly negativity, but is there a, an ingredient or is there a, a no-no? Is there a pairing that is just sort of disastrous that should absolutely be avoided at all costs? I, I suppose really ultra hot curries, um, really hot curries but most curries are not so hot these days i i think unless you get all you know incredibly hot sauces it's kind of extremes that kind of cause problems very very gooey stinky cheeses so um epoise for example um the, uh, the um washed rind cheese if that's allowed to kind of mature so that it's kind of almost running across the cheese board <laughs> that's quite a problem but uh, so i would actually not tend to drink um wine with it if we got to that stage even though the burgundians do um uh i'd go for something like a mar de, Bourg de bourgogne uh, so you know there are there are other other drinks you can bring into play you know sometimes beer if you're talking about pickles and things um uh, beer often works better than wine yeah, I mean, real ale with a ploughman's is absolutely delicious, isn't it, at, at lunch? So I, I suppose that's the kind of where you're heading. The cheese board you mentioned, uh, what's the most versatile wine or fortified that you could go for with a cheese board, do you think? I think um, an aged Rioja is pretty good, actually, myself, bearing in mind that most people want Ooh. to drink um, red wine with cheese. Uh, and it's it's quite it has soft tannins it's quite mellow and you know it, it it will rub along pretty well with most cheeses right okay well i should definitely try that um do you think the wine retail um industry does enough to help consumers make these kind of choices no i don't actually i think i think they're in general they're kind of like the the the, the sort of recommendations are, are too vague so say this wine goes with chicken and pasta i mean how many ways can you cook chicken 
I mean, are you talking about the same kind of wine for, for chicken and a slightly creamy sauce as a Thai green chicken curry or a coca vin? You, and you know you're not. On the other hand, you can be too specific. Sometimes you get on a back label a, a dish that's so impossibly specific that, you know, people are going to look at that and say, but I'm not, I don't know whether I'm making anything like that or not. So <laughs> I think, I think could, people could be a bit more helpful about back labels, really. Well, you're certainly very helpful to your Guardian readers uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. Um, I couldn't find out when I was doing my homework how long you've been doing your Guardian column now. Um, over 10 years. Wow. OK. Um, mm-hmm. And Guardian readers, uh, I, I am one, so I can say this. Um, they're a funny bunch. And my mother was a teacher and... Um, it's almost a stereotype, but she was therefore an avid Guardian reader. And uh, she was very serious when she was reading The Guardian. You know, you didn't really want to disturb her while she was reading The Guardian. They're a very, they have a, uh, the, the newspaper inspires a particular loyalty. Um, do you have to kind of have that mindset in your head when you're going about your job with wine recommendations? I think it's probably in many ways like like other newspapers. I mean, you've got to bear in mind that some people are geekier than others. Some people are prepared to spend more than others. Um, but you're there to do a job for them both, really, um, which, which is sometimes a tricky balancing act. I mean, you do get people who, um, you know, react with outrage um, when you recommend a more expensive wine or tell you that they've bought or used to buy in France, they could get, you know, a litre of a litre of wine for, you know, one euro fifty and sort of like, what do you what do you mean? That's cheap. You know, I mean, you do. They are opinionated, I think, is what I'm saying. (laughs) And do they um, kind of get in touch with you sometimes as well about your recommendations? No, well, they they comment on the spot, really. Um, And occasionally they'll they'll write to me, but um, it's more it's more normal to kind of comment, um, you know, on the article at, at, at the point at which it's published. Yeah, it's also considerably easier, I suppose, than, than writing a, an old-fashioned uh, yeah. letter. Um, so you've been doing that for a decade, but you've also worked at, um, at Decanter. You've worked uh, extensively, obviously, Today newspaper, you mentioned at the, at the start of your career, um, and in, in numerous different places. Um, how has wine writing and criticism changed in the decades that you've been in this game? Um, it's changed a lot in some ways, less in others. I mean, I still think it's, uh, to a great extent, recommendation-based, which, um, you know, I guess is what people want, and so that's, that's the world we live in. I think it, it pieces the amount of space devoted to to wine and other drinks has has been cut back. Um, so there's you know there's not so much space. Uh, against that, there are many more outlets. I mean, people can they can blog about wine, they can Instagram about wine, they can um, they can make YouTube videos. You know, they they can do all sorts of things. They can go on TikTok now. So. I mean, it, it, it's a much more open world than it perhaps was. And you're approving, are you, of the influencing, some of the things that have come along in the last decade? Yes, as long as it's transparent, as long as it's clear, you know, what the basis of, um, you know, the post is or the, you know, the, um, the blog post or, or the Instagram post is you know, whether whether it's being paid for or not, um, then I think it's okay. You get more people into wine 
become more knowledgeable about other drinks as a result of writing about it or appearing on different platforms. That really is all to the good. I mean, you know, I'm probably going to appeal most to people who are already interested in wine. What the influencers can do, the young influencers, is actually pull people in who might not be wine drinkers. And that's all to the good. Print is very much your medium historically, but um, you've um, arguably embraced a multi-platform presence, uh, to use kind of um, uh, the terminology I've just kind of invented, really. Um, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, is this um, strategic on your part or is it something that's just happened? I think it's just happened. I think I'm somebody who um, is always up for trying something new. That said, I haven't actually gone on TikTok. I think I'm really kind of a bit old for TikTok now. But um, <laughs> I mean, uh, You can only, you can only have so many platforms, I think, as well. It gets a bit much otherwise. Up, yeah, when, when a new... Um, platform and we know I was probably an early adopter of Twitter and and ditto of Instagram and you just think oh this sounds interesting I might give this a try and um and so I did um I don't think it was kind of like this will definitely advantage my career you know um I didn't think about it like that. Uh, wine writing is a, a second journalistic career for me um after sort of news broadcasting beforehand and um so, so I've been reading about wine and, and being enthused about wine for, for quite some years by people like you, which is why it's a, a great pleasure to, to chat to you. Um, I've always taken the view that um, given the majority of those that I've read avidly over the years are women, so there's you, there's Jancis Robinson, OBE, there's Victoria Moore, Jane McWitty, Susie Atkin, the list goes on. I've always taken the view that the wine writing trade was perhaps a step ahead of other journalistic industries in terms of equality um what are your thoughts on that am i right or am i just being a bit sort of rose tinted i think a little bit rose tinted i mean it does so happen that um you know women are well represented among the the sort of newspaper and magazine columnists that said i still think the wine world is very male most people in the trade are 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 men, I would say still. Um, sometimes the attitudes are quite male, although it's much less so than than it was. So, um, and yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's uh, the issue of putting down young women um, who venture above the parapet, I think is, is a, a bit disturbing and has been addressed recently. Um, and I think young women sometimes find it hard in the in the business and shouldn't. And kind of we all need to support them if they do. And do you think in the last year you've seen some sort of positive movement on that front? There's a great, far greater consciousness about it. Um, whether that's eradicated it I, uh, entirely, I doubt. But um, at least people are looking out for it. Your son, Will, is founder of, of Hawksmoor, the uh, excellent steak restaurant. I mean, I would say that to you, uh, but, uh, but it is good. It's really good. Um, and he talks about the, uh, the foodie upbringing that he had where simple dishes were just prepared brilliantly. And uh, he means by you. What are your food passions? Oh, gosh, I think that's so all-encompassing. I, I, you know, I kind of wouldn't, I would say the only thing, it, perhaps like a negative things. I wouldn't say I'm I'm kind of a baker. I'm not a massive baker. I kind of I had to, had to do a post on sourdough um, 
uh, sort of about three months into lockdown, just saying, do you know, I'm never going to do this. There is no <laughs> I remember that. Yes, it did make me laugh. And I just kind of gave up, gave up on it. And um, so, and I don't spend a lot of time baking, but um, I mean, almost any cuisine, I've got loads of cookbooks, obsessive about cookbooks, and um, I'm always trying things. And, and usually if I've spent a lot of time, you know, having one kind of food, if I've been eating quite a lot of Italian, I'll suddenly think, you know, God, I really want to have a go at, you know, making kimchi or something like that. Um, so um, I'm an experimental cook. Well, that sounds great. Uh, you celebrate Bristol a lot too. You're almost, um, I regard you as part of a, a kind of Bristol mafia. I don't mean organised crime, obviously. I'm talking about uh, the, the, the trade you're into. You'll be relieved to hear. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's it down in that sort of region, there's, there's Susie Atkin, there's obviously Kate Hawkins, uh, uh, there's your, yourself as well. Um, uh, what makes you love and celebrate Bristol so much? Well, it goes, I mean, it goes beyond food, even though it has an amazing food scene. I love it because it's, you know, it's a big, vib vibrant city and it's far enough from London not to be living in London's shadow, which I think Brighton um, does a little bit, although I do like Brighton too. Um, it's got a very strong sense of its own identity. It's very diverse. It's very self-confident and... It's also surrounded by the most beautiful countryside. So, um, uh, you know, it's the gateway to the West Country. Um, it's just a great city. Yeah, I'd uh, subscribe to that. I don't know the city well, but every time I've been there, um, I just want to come back, which is always a, a really good sign of a, um, of a, a British city, I, I think. Um, final question, um, which is one that I suspect um, you get asked quite a lot. Um, what's your desert island wine? Yeah, that is a difficult one. Um, I usually cop out on this um, because, you know, I, I kind of probably change my mind every six months on what it might be. But I generally think and say, well, you know, desert island's going to be hot and I want something that's just um, enjoyable to drink. So I'm, I'm going to take um, a case of rosé or kind of an unending supply of rosé. I mean, unlike many people, you know, I don't regard rosé as second-class wine. I do actually think it's delicious. And um, if, if you push me, I might say Bondol rosé. I particularly like that. Oh. Um, uh, but um, I don't know. Why wouldn't you want rosé on a desert island? Well, exactly, because the desert island is going to be pretty hot, isn't it? It, it stands to reason. Yeah, I think rosé may be the order of the day anyway. <laughs> yeah, rosé makes me happy as well. And you need that if you're stuck on a desert island. I, it's, I've just written my column for Club Inilogique about rosé, uh, about my passion for it. Um, and uh, it used to be, you know, embarrassing to drink rosé if you were a man about 25 years ago, I think, or it certainly felt like that when I was younger. And uh, boy, has that changed. So it's great uh, to hear you talking about it properly as a, as a really serious wine uh, as well. Yeah, and actually, you know, not always, it doesn't always have to be um serious and when I kind of do remember that when um, we used to spend a lot of time in France we'd just kind of go down to the local co-op with one of those plastic containers and kind of fill up from the pump you know and actually it was delicious it was very light it was you know you could it was probably only about 10 or 11 percent and it was just very clean very fresh very dry and you know uh, so sometimes there are occasions for things aren't there you know you don't always want to be reverential about about wine and kind of like you don't always want to drink in a considered manner sometimes it's just enough 
to have a nice glass of something cold and delicious and drink it. I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, if, you, if you're going to be stuck on a desert island with Fiona Beckett, you're going to get good rosé. It's going to be fun, uh, but you're not going to get any sourdough. So uh, forget that. Um, uh, Fiona, <laughs> thank you very much. It's, it's great pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Well, thank you. And next time you're in Bristol, yeah, we should go and have lunch. Oh, I will. Now, it's a date. In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for the first of our selection of medal-winning wines and spirits from the 2021 IWSC Hall of Fame. And it's to Moldova first and a gold medal winner, Viorica di Purcari 2020, made with the Viorica grape, which is a cross of two red varieties, Cibel and Aliatico, which then results in a white grape at the end of it. It tends to be vinified off dry or even semi-sweet. It's only planted in Moldova and it's usually all consumed there apparently as well. The judges said, focused and aromatic, this wine is a great expression of the region. On the nose, jasmine tea and spiced orange peel. The palate has ample rose, ginger and lime and a great texture. This wine is well balanced and full of character. It sounds really fascinating, uh, one perhaps for lovers of Gewürztraminer and it is £16 at Novel Wines if you want to try it. To the Napa Valley next, Grudich Hills Estate, Cabernet Sauvignon 2017, won a silver medal. The estate is pretty famous because it was founded by Milenko or Mike Grigic, who made the 1973 Chateau Montalena Chardonnay, which won the best wine at the Paris 1976 tasting. That was the famous Judgment of Paris, organised by the late great Stephen Spurrier. The judges here said attractive and appealing nose, excellent structure of blackcurrant aromas supported by refreshing black plum and notes of tomato leaf, delicious complexity and elegance. And that is available through independent retailers. And talking pairing, as we were with uh, the wonderful Fiona just now, uh, she recommends a dry white vermouth when the weather is hot. So why not turn to this British made vermouth from East Sussex? English hedgerow white vermouth made by Ostara Drinks is full of hedgerow botanicals from the county where founder Julian Davis grew up. A bronze medal winner, the judges said, delicately floral on the nose, bittersweet orange, herbs and menthol evolve on the palate. And that is £29. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now here's a question, how do you go about creating a brand new drink? Not just another iteration of something that exists already, like yet another gin, for example, 
but a product that's completely new to fill what you perceive to be a gap in the market. Well, that's exactly what Vishal Patel and his brother-in-law Sajag have done with Salasa, an alcoholic aperitif specifically designed to pair with Indian cuisine. Salasa Mumbai is 20% ABV to either be mixed with tonic or used in cocktails, or I guess you could drink it neat with ice if you wanted to as well. And it was designed with the help of chefs, mixologists and even food scientists. And Vishal joins me now from Bristol. Um, hello, Vishal. Thanks very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Hi, David. Thanks a lot for having me. So why, first of all, did you choose to develop this product in this sector? So my brother-in-law, Sajak, and I, we're both um, big foodies, um, whether that's going out and trying a new restaurant or making a new dish at home. And um, unsurprisingly, uh, being of Indian heritage, um, Indian cuisine is one of our favourites. Um, and we just noticed that in, in the market, there's this growing premiumization of Indian cuisine in the UK. It's no longer just chicken tikka masala and uh, you know, ha- let's have the hottest and uh, spices vindaloo that you can have. Um, you know, there is, alongside traditional curries, there's now this great um, influx of Indian street food and also recognizing regional differences between um, the different states in India. And so you're getting this um, increasingly um, you know, great flavored, great variety in Indian cuisine. But we thought that the drinks that serve with Indian food um, are still sort of stuck in the past and are quite challenging. Um, you know, typically you would have your sort of mass produced lagers. They can be quite polarizing. It makes you feel bloated. It's quite heavy. Or um, typically consumers will, will, will sort of shoehorn a European white wine uh, into a pairing. Um, I'm certainly, unlike you, David, I'm not a, I'm not a wine expert. And so I, I don't find that pairing wine with Indian food is a very sort of intuitive or accessible choice. Um, and, and so, um, so Jag and I just both thought that, you know, there must be something better out there uh, to pair with Indian cuisine uh, than the, the current options. Well, it's definitely uh, true that you're onto something with that. Um, I, for one, uh, find those uh, beers that you sort of historically associate with going out and having Indian cuisine uh, really quite heavy and, and they make me feel, yeah, as you say, full, bloated afterwards. It is possible to pair wine, but it is, as you say, quite difficult. So I think you are, you've clearly identified this kind of gap in the market. Tell me how uh, you and Sajag went about developing this then. So um, first of all, uh, we got we got quite geeky. Uh, we worked with a, a food scientist, Darren Staniforth, um, to help us better understand the structure of Indian food. You know which ingredients work well uh, with each other and those that work less well. Um, and, and quite quickly, we realised that we wanted to create a citrus-forward um, spirit to cut through the richness and sometimes heaviness off Indian food uh, to create something that is both you know, light and refreshing. Um, and you mentioned that the spirit was, is made at 20% ABV. That was a very sort of conscious um, thought by us um, and a lot of thought went into it. And, and the reason is, you know, alcohol doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, we very much like the taste and flavor of alcohol, but not the effects um, too much. And um, not only can it give you a terrible hangover, it also affects, more importantly, the flavor of the food that you're having with it. And so we wanted a spirit that not only tastes delicious, but actually sort of complements Indian food, um, you know, elevating it rather than overpowering it like a full strength spirit would. So that's how we settled um, uh, at a spirit at, at 20% ABV. Um, secondly, we collaborated with uh, leading chefs. 
um, and ask them, what would you like to drink uh, with, with your you know, meticulously prepared dish if you had a blank canvas? Um, and this was a real sort of unlocking moment for us because the chefs were like, that's a great question. I always have to you know, tailor my dish to suit the drink. Whereas if, it would be great if I had a drink that actually was um, you know, tailored to my, to my dish. Um, and so we realized through speaking with chefs that the, we needed the right balance of sweet, sour and bitter um, in our drink and therefore we chose our ingredients accordingly and then thirdly you know, we worked with mixologists um, to finalize their recipe and seek their guidance on what is the right flavor and serve profile um, to ultimately create an appealing drink uh, for consumers. It's really interesting the food science part at the at the outset. Uh, what did your food scientist kind of tell you about the kind of molecular structure of Indian cuisine um, in terms of, of what you need uh, to go along with it? So, um, as you know, as it can be a very, um, it can be a very challenging um, cuisine um, to, to, you know, to, to consume, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of very rich and, and, and heavy ingredients um, that, that go into um, Indian food. And, Therefore, that, that pairing with something like citrus, which sort of very much sort of cuts through and contrasts with the, the, the rich flavours of Indian food, that getting that balance right will be super um, important in order to create a drink that is um, not only, you know, tastes nice with Indian food, but actually sort of is light and refreshing and sort of cleanses the, the, the palate after each mouthful, um, rather than, as I would sort of crudely put it, recreating curry in a bottle and putting the same <laughs> ingredients uh, that you have in your food in the drink. That is the opposite to the way that we realised that we needed to go about trying to find, um, you know, what is the perfect pairing with Indian cuisine. So once you'd got uh, this uh, kind of mix in your mind, and you had a, a prototype drink, do you then go about testing it with a, um, a load of different meals? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we did. So, you know, for the first few iterations, um, unfortunately due to COVID, we couldn't sort of get in the same room. So, um, so Jag and I were at home, uh, we were creating our own sort of Indian dishes. We were trying it with our favorite takeaways uh, from our favorite restaurants. Um, and it was as simple as, you know, taking, it, taking a sip of the, uh, taking a sip of the spirit, trying it with the food, seeing what worked, seeing what didn't. And it, we didn't strike it on day one. I have to say the first iteration of the product was fantastic with Thai cuisine, but not very well with Indian. Um, and so we realized that, you know, this is going to be a bit of a journey. It's going to be an iterative process. Um, and, you know, we, we, we both uh, continue to do that development at home. And then at the beginning of the year, when some of the restrictions started easing, you know, we were able to actually, you know, go to see um, chefs in their workplace and do tastings with them and get a better idea, as I said, of what is the right balance of um, sweet, sour and bitter uh, that we need in order to complement the food. I don't know if you watch the TV show The Apprentice, but uh, occasionally they're tasked with a, a food item and these apprentices go off and uh, are asked to make a drink or make a food item of some kind. And, and quite often the results are catastrophic, actually. It's, it's certainly a lot more difficult than it uh, looks, I think. Uh, you alluded there to uh, one of the prototypes being better for Thai food. Uh, did you find it hard to do this? Yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, it was very difficult. And I think if, I'd, I'd have to say, because of COVID, we couldn't get into the room with our um, liquid developer and the three of us sort of sit there, you know, iterate on the spot, try things, try a bit of this, bit of that. You know, it was 
right, what do, what do you guys think we need? This is what this is the ideas that we're playing with. Right, I'll send it into a post. Obviously, there was delays with Royal Mail, and so it was sort of a week between each different iterations. And in our head, um, you know, what we wanted to do with the drink had sort of gone, um, you know, forward during the week that we were just waiting for the spirit to come for us to try. So, yeah, I think it was it was a very difficult process, made um, more difficult by the fact that you know we couldn't just all be in the sort of same room together trying things. Um, but unfortunately, that's that's how these things go and um you know we're, we're ultimately really happy with with where we've got to at the moment it just might have taken us a bit more time than we would have liked well you got there and that's great that's the main thing and uh, i've tried it i i really enjoyed it it was actually even without indian cuisine it was a fantastic midweek aperitif actually as well because of that lower abv a really wonderful substitute for a, um, a g&t i think so tell us uh, you've alluded to the citrus but tell us what's in it yeah, great, great question. So um, the, the citrus notes um, in the in the drink come from orange zest and lime. Um, there is also a hint of sweetness from lychee, um, and then um, we've got mint and basil um, as the main herbs in the drink, and that really provides for a very sort of cooling and refreshing um, taste experience. And then finally, the spices um, that we've put into the drink, we would refer them um, as cooling spices you know we're not looking to accelerate any heat flavors the spices that we've used are, are to complement the food um, and to um, sort of relax the taste buds and so the spices that we've used are cardamom coriander seeds fennel and carom seeds as well and then the final ingredient um, very similar to cooking and again was inspiration from a chef was you know just how chefs like to finish every dish with a bit of salt um, to bring out the flavours um, of the of the rest of the ingredients in the dish, we've also added a pinch of sea salt um, to to really bring out the the, the flavours in the drink. It's interesting that because I wondered before I tasted it whether it would be a little bit sweet, and I don't really like things that are a little bit sweet but actually it's not at all there's a a lovely citrus freshness there um and there's that spice you mentioned as well but there's also that really nice saline note that i would find in a, a wine and that is obviously that uh, dash of of uh, sea salt um that was very much your thinking was it to, to create something that was a bit more savory yes exactly i think um you know what was really important for us is that we wanted the product to be all natural, um, which it is, so it's suitable for, for vegans as well. There is no added sugar um, in, in the product either. And, and that was really important for us because some restaurants um, have done some great things to try and diversify the drinks options uh, with, with Indian food. Um, we feel that on balance that some of the existing options out there are still a little bit sort of too sweet, a bit sort of sticky, um, sort of yellow in colour in terms of sort of a mango type um, cocktail that you might get. And I think, you know, just like with great, you know, with great food, people want great adult tasting drinks. And I think for us, you know, making sure that the, the, the product wasn't laden with, with sugar was a super important um, point for us. Um, we added in that sea salt, as you mentioned, David, for that salinity. Um, and we also sort of dialed up the acidity right at the end of our liquid development just to give that nice long finish um, to, to the drink that you might expect with something like wine. Because as I said, this is an alternative um, to, to beer and wine with food, but we know that obviously beer and wine works really well um, with, with food and there are reasons for that. And therefore we wanted to try and take the best bits from those and adapt them and to work with our spirit as well.
I imagine you have a calorie advantage too, certainly over beer, don't you? Yes, exactly. So our sort of suggested serve is um, a salasa and tonic. Uh, so that's 50 mils salasa and 150 mils light Indian tonic. And, and that comes in at less than um, 100 calories. Um, so as you said, a big, a big advantage um, calorie wise uh, with beer. And actually um, with a 20% spirit, when you mix it with tonic, you get a drink that's at 5% ABV. And therefore it's half the alcohol of a glass of wine. Um, so there's an additional uh, benefit for those who are looking for a sort of reduced alcohol uh, content as well. Yeah, or just to offset that lovely creamy sauce as well. But uh, that would be, <laughs> exactly. I, I suspect. But uh, is this it now or do you have plans to launch a, a suite of similar drinks in this uh, space that in the market that you've identified? Definitely. Our overall um, you know, mission with Salasa is to try and change uh, consumer habits to move away from just simply drinking beer and wine with food. I mean, in, in the East, in particular in Asia, you know, drinking spirits with food is actually a very sort of common common practice. Um, you know, you've, you've got Baiju in, in, in China and Saki and Soshu in, in Japan and, and in India, actually a lot of whiskey is, is consumed um, with food as well. And so in Asia, you've got, a, you know, it's, it's very common to drink spirits with food, but in, in, in the West, in the UK, in particular, you know, it's, it's beer and wine. And, you know, I, I switch from my gin and tonic to beer and wine uh, w w when I'm having food. And therefore, our sort of overall mission is, well, actually, if someone could give you something that is more flavor flavorsome, accessible and authentic, with certain food choices, I'm not saying that, you know, a spirit goes with all, all cuisines, not at all. But if, if I could give you an option that is those things with a particular type of cuisine and it's been specifically made to pair with it, could that not be a very viable alternative um, option for you? And so I think we're testing, um, we're testing the market and consumers' appetite to drink spirits with food um, with Indian cuisine. And I think Indian cuisine is ripe for that. As I mentioned, you've got this growing premiumization of the Indian food scene, um, but the drinks are still stuck in the past, we feel. And so we're using um, Indian cuisine as a test bed. And look, if, if it works, um, then great. But then that, that means that potentially we're onto something. And therefore, I think you mentioned this, you know, this variant, and David is called Salasa Mumbai. We would love to create a Salasa Bangkok uh, for Thai cuisine, of which, as I mentioned earlier, we, we've, got a, we've got a variant already in the back locker for that. Um, and potentially, you know, Salasa Shanghai, for example, for Chinese food. So I think the, the idea is very much to try and create a range um, of, of, of spirits to pair with food. Um, but we know that that is a huge that is a huge um, endeavour, and therefore we're focusing at the moment specifically on Indian cuisine, and then we'll uh, we'll take it from there. Well, I love the fact you're using the word variant in a positive way, with a a, a kind of uh, positive association uh, rather than the one we we kind of associated with it now. So that that that's fantastic. Where can we get hold of this? Sure. So our website has just gone live, uh, so you can order a, a, a bottle from salasadrinks.com. Uh, we've got various suggested serve recipes there as well. I think you mentioned previously um, we really love the product with with tonic but it goes fantastic in a range of a couple of different cocktails and also just simply neat over ice um, as well um, and we've also uh, launched into the on trade securing our first restaurant listing um, last week uh, we are in, currently in discussions with a number of leading indian restaurants all over the uk uh, about getting a, um, a listing on their drinks menu so we're hopeful that as the on trade uh, you know begins to recover from the effects of covid that consumers can start to enjoy our product uh, in more of their favorite indian restaurants um, across the uk very soon
Well, good luck with that. I look forward to seeing it on a list the next time I'm having Indian-themed cuisine because it's definitely a, a great uh, partner for that. So um, well done. And uh, thanks very much, Vishal, for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much, David. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. That's almost it for this week, but there's just time for our final batch of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And it's to Greece first and a gold medal winner with 95 points. Single Vineyard Turtles Malagusia 2020 from Alpha Estate. It's from the northwest of the country and the wine is called Turtles because the vineyard is a nesting place for local turtles who return every year, apparently. The judges said... This wine has a pronounced nose of ginger, rose petal and sweet spice. The palate is fresh and vibrant with great complexity, giving white peach and floral flavours. There's generous depth and character to the wine with a mean saline streak of acidity. The mineral finish is long and delicate. Superb, they said, and it sounds absolutely delicious. Imported by Halgarten, uh, so it's available in good independent stores and I'm sure you'll find it on restaurant wine lists as well. To Portugal next, Masala Alvarinho 2020 from Vinaverde won a silver medal. It's made by Grande Porte Vino. Uh, this is the original wine from the company that started in 2005. Alvarinho is seen as the queen of the grapes in the Minho region, uh, just as Alvarinho is the queen of Galicia, uh, just over the border north in Spain. It's the same grape with a Portuguese name, obviously. Uh, the judges said a minerally style with notes of melon, elderflower, citrus, peaches and cream and a hint of white pepper. Crunchy acidity, supple, fresh and delightful. And a gold medal winning gin that I cannot wait to try. Saxon Garden Gin from Wessex Distillery. It's owned by Jonathan Clark and his family and it's a lovely floral gin evocative of a summer garden. The judges said, embracing and enjoyable on the nose, dancing with aromas of herbs and soft spice, evolving on the palate with an enjoyable depth and complexity from citrus and warming spice that extends into a generously long juniper-led finish. It's £30 on Amazon or at Master of Malt. Enjoy that if you can. And that's it for the drinking hour here on Food FM for this week. Thank you for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And you can follow me. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And if you liked what you heard and you're listening on iTunes, do please give us a five star review if you wouldn't mind, because uh, it makes a huge difference. Uh, for now, though, thank you and see you next time. Goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.